Let us pray. Each day, O oh Lord, you call us to follow you, to open our hearts to you, to turn away from that which may distract us from your service. So we pray now that in these moments you would guide and direct us, open our hearts to hear your word, and enable us to respond as faithful disciples. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I don't do flip turns well. When swimming laps, the skilled swimmer does a beautiful flip in order to change directions. When approaching the wall, the swimmer strokes steadily, and then at just the right distance from the wall, she finishes a stroke, and when both hands are at her hips, she tucks her head, does an underwater somersault, plants her feet against the wall, gives a firm push, glides beautifully in the other direction while flipping to a prone position, and at the right time comes up to start stroking again. All this happens in seconds, shorter than the time it takes to describe it. I have never been a competitive swimmer, but I have enjoyed lap swimming as a form of exercise. My efforts to do a flip turn are not pretty. I don't get the timing right. Sometimes I try to do it too soon and then I can't hit the wall and I'm, my feet are flapping in the water. That doesn't work. And sometimes I wait too long, probably on the next lap, and I get too close to the wall and then I whack my hand against the wall or my feet. That doesn't work. And these days, anything involving a somersault or a flip makes me dizzy, which, of course, <clears throat> has nothing to do with my age. I think it's because I can't do a flip turn well that I admire the elegance of those who can. Changing directions can be a beautiful thing. As you know, this summer we are wrestling with the book of Ezekiel, both in the Bible study that takes place prior to worship and in this preaching series. In many respects, the central message of the book is a call to change directions. Unfortunately, that change is hard, very hard. The section of Ezekiel that we are considering this morning is chapters 8 to 11, the second vision report. In this vision, the glory of the Lord leads, leaves the temple of Jerusalem. And this was an incredibly difficult moment for the ancient Israelites, a moment for which we probably have very little intuitive understanding. If Ezekiel sometimes seems like confusing reading, let me assure you it is not for any lack of intelligence on your part. This is difficult, challenging material. So the backstory is twofold. First, over a period of years, many years, the people of Israel began to invest more and more authority into the temple in Jerusalem. It was a holy site, a place where the people could meet God. This particular building, this single site in a single city, 
was where God was thought to dwell. Worship sites hither and yon had been dismantled, and the people were encouraged to come to Jerusalem to worship. Imagine the investment of spiritual commitment into one place. It is not just that the Jerusalem temple was sacred. It was sacred. It was the place God dwelt. As modern Christians, this may be hard for us to imagine. We know that God is with us no matter where we are, and we casually affirm that God is present with us at home on a Sunday morning as much as in church, and some may even claim that God's imminence is even more palpable at a sunrise on the beach than in a Protestant worship service. Yes, certainly. We can meet God in all sorts of settings. And yet, we know something about the importance of place. When Duke Chapel was closed during the academic year 2015 to 2016, we worshiped in auditoriums on campus. The same preachers, the same music, many of the same people, and worship attendance decreased. More than one faithful Christian said, it just doesn't feel the same. We know we invest a place with meaning, for this is where our children are baptized. This is where we proclaim our love to a spouse. Here is where we face the mystery of death and marvel in the resurrection. Here in this place, we have heard a holy call known the divine presence, have united with the people of God. Yes, God is everywhere, but for us, because of our history, God is uniquely here. And I hasten to add that for others, God is uniquely present in their church. Now take that commitment to a sacred place and multiply it, intensify it, and maybe we begin to imagine what the temple may have been to those ancient Israelites. Robert Browning might claim that God's in his heaven and all's right in the world, but the Israelites would have been more likely to say, God is in the temple, and so all is right with the world. The importance of the temple is part of the backdrop for this story. But the second part of the backstory is sin, specifically idolatry, specifically in the temple. The chosen people of God who are in a covenantal relationship with God, who have been given land to call their own, are not living according to the covenant. They are worshiping false gods. Ezekiel's vision includes several disturbing scenes. In one scene, women are in the temple weeping to a fertility god, perhaps longing for a plentiful harvest. In another scene, men have their backs to the temple and are bowing to the sun, worshiping the sun rather than the God of Abraham and Sarah. 
It is bad enough that the people who have been claimed by God have turned to false gods, but their sin is compounded because the evidence of idolatry is in the temple, God's own temple, the place where God resides, the very place where the people are to meet the one holy God is the place where the people are worshiping idols. God is not pleased. In fact, God is so jealous, so angry, that there's a great deal of violence and mayhem. It is a terrible scene of judgment. And then God's presence, God's glory, leaves the temple. Ezekiel describes the seeing cherubim, wheels, and the glory of the Lord above them moving out of the temple. Imagine the shock and horror of thinking you have been deserted by God. For the ancient Israelites, it could not have gotten any worse. They were hitting bottom. The situation was very ugly, very painful. The phrase hitting bottom is often used in the recovery community. As you know, alcoholism and other addictions are terrible diseases. They are progressive and often fatal. Six percent of our population have alcohol use disorder. That's one out of every 16 of us. And many more are impacted by this disease because they happen to love someone who is ill. Alcoholism can cause chaos in families and drive the non-drinkers just as crazy as it drives the drinkers. Full recovery is less common than we would wish, with some only with only 35% finding lasting sobriety. Alcohol abuse is only part of the story. There are other addictions as well. <coughs> When the addicted do find recovery, it is often hitting bottom that is the catalyst for change. While the lowest point may be different for each person, losing a job or a spouse or home or health, it is the point when the individual recognizes the full impact of the disease and their response to it. It is the moment they come to themselves shocked that they thought a pig pen would be a good source of food. They have slammed full force into their biology, culture, history, and actions. It is ugly and painful. Out of love, family and friends try to spare each other what is ugly and painful. Sometimes we protect each other, cover for each other, make excuses for each other, pretend for each other. Depending on the situation, this may be acceptable for a time. In recovery from addiction, however, many who are healing will say that they needed to hit bottom. It was only then that they could turn. Only then that they could find their footing and push off into a new direction. Once they have hit bottom, the only direction to go is up. 
I wonder if in some ways, as the Israelites expect, experienced God's departure from the temple, it was as if they hit bottom. They finally had to come face to face with their culture, their history, and their actions. Perhaps it could be a turning point for them. Repentance is the term we use in the church to speak of changing directions. Repentance includes an, an awareness of what we have done, regret for past actions, and a determination to head in a new direction. It is a turning away from that which destroys life to face and to enter into that which brings life. It is admitting our sin, our idolatry, and our wandering from God, coupled with a desire to turn to God and God's ways. We don't talk about repentance much because we don't want to focus on guilt and sin and mistakes and would rather focus on the positives in life, a carrot rather than a stick. Yet here in Ezekiel, we have a powerful judgment of the people with the result that God's presence leaves the temple, which I see at least in part as a call to repentance. The good news is that the book of Ezekiel does not stop with the readings we heard today. Spoiler alert here. In just a few chapters, we hear the Lord God declare this. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, all of you according to your ways, repent and turn from your transgressions, otherwise iniquity will be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed against me and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone. Turn then and live. I have no pleasure in the death of anyone. Turn and live. Hitting bottom and the consequent repentance, while painful and difficult, are ultimately good if they lead <coughs> to new life. Changing directions can be a beautiful thing. In the Gospel of Luke, we heard the story of a woman described simply as a sinner. Scandalously, she showed up uninvited where Jesus was having dinner, then proceeded to pour anointment on his feet and watch them with her tears. Simon, Jesus' dinner companion, was offended that a sinful woman would touch Jesus in this way. Jesus responded by acknowledging the beauty of her situation with the comment that her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love. Her repentance and forgiveness led to great love. The situations in which we may need to change directions are sometimes profound and sometimes modest, but it is rarely easy to acknowledge that the direction in which we are heading is the wrong one. Whether it is a relationship, employment, volunteer commitment, or attitude, there are times we need to courageously admit that we are in the wrong spot, we have hit a wall, and we need to turn around. 
And just as we as individuals find ourselves in situations that much, must change, so it is true for we as members of an institution or a community or a nation must likewise change. Sometimes a body of people must change its culture, direction, or attitudes. And if it's hard to do as individuals, it is more complex and challenging for a group. When we find ourselves hitting bottom, as a community or as an individual, perhaps we need to hear the psalmist remind us, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. According to Ezekiel, even though the presence of the Lord left the temple, that same presence came to dwell with the people in exile. So even when we are hitting bottom, even when we have to change directions, we can trust that God is with us, encouraging us, saying, turn and live. And when we turn and live, then perhaps we are in a place where we can join in singing that simple shaker song, to turn, to turn will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. Thanks be to God for the hope and the gift of new life. Amen.